If you're joining us for the first time or the first time in a while, we are back in the book of Exodus. We took a couple weeks off. Jason did a fantastic job launching us back into a series last week in the book of Exodus. And we're calling this little series the book of the covenant because that is what scholars for millennia have called it um, in this section of scripture. So we got really creative and thought we'll just name it what they named it. So uh, anyway, so we're taking two weeks to go through this section of 42 of the 613 laws that God gave to his people 3,500 years ago. Now, let me just ask, getting us rolling here, how many of you have ever um, in a class or maybe just, uh, you know, how many of you, you, you're like, all right, you're supposed to read Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet, and you start out and you're like, wherefore to art thou? What is this, right? And you're like, man, this English, I don't know. And so you got really smart and you bought the Cliff Notes because you knew there'd be a test. None of you. You're too good. You're too good. I know. One, we have one honest one over here like, yep, that's me, Cliff Notes. I don't have to read the whole book. I can just read the summary, right? The Cliff Notes. I can just read it. Instead of Romeo and Juliet, long Long, boring. Um, now I know that uh, the moral of Romeo and Juliet is one of letting old family wounds go and not letting your emotions rule your life. Got it. Check off the box, right? I, I can answer the test. And here's the thing. The company says, hey, hey, we're, we're actually, this isn't a replacement for reading the original work. No, but lots of students use it that way, don't they? As a replacement instead of going back and reading the, the full version, Right? And so here's how this applies to this scripture. You know, the book of the covenant, like I said, we're taking these two weeks to go through this section of scripture that has 42 of the 613 laws that were given to the people of Israel. And they had, God gave them, if you think about this, 613 laws that governed their civil society, their moral life, and their ancient religious system. Now, let me just ask you, how many does that sound like kind of a lot? 613 like, to try to remember that, to try to do all those, right? Okay, let me just put this in context if you think that's a lot, or if you're like, oh my goodness, I could never read that in the Bible. That's, if you start at the Ten Commandments and go to the end of the first five books of the Bible, called the Torah, um, it's 155 pages. Now, you take out all the, the fun narrative stuff, you know, and just boil it down to the laws. I'm guessing we're, we're under 100 pages at that point. So just to put this in reference, if you're like, I could never do that. I need to read the Cliff Notes. Um, U.S. law. In 1927, all of our federal laws fit in one volume. Did you know by the 1980s, we had 50 volumes and more than 23,000 pages of law? Yeah. So this is nothing. This is nothing. But here's what we do when we start reading through this. Anybody ever tried, like, every year we encourage you to, do the, uh, to read through the Bible. If you've never done it, especially, you know, we call it the Bible challenge. And it's a great thing to do. It's an amazing um, w- way to take a year and actually go through the Bible. And one of, the, one of my favorite ways over the years has been something called the one-year Bible, which you have this, this section from the Old Testament, and then you have, you know, like a psalm, and then you have a section from the New Testament. And it's a great way to just chunk by chunk over, over a year to read through the whole Bible. And, uh, and so if you've gotten to like Exodus, these sections, and then uh, Leviticus, it's like, here's how we do it. We're like, oh, uh, oh, Ten Commandments. Yeah, I, I remember a few of those. Oh, yeah, I remember those. And you're like, cool. 
and then you keep going. You're like, oh, yeah, that's a cool story, right? Oh, um, and you get to this section, it's like, mm, laws, 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 right? Laws, 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 skim, skim, skim. And then you get a little further into Leviticus, and you're like, hmm, I, I wonder if pork is included in bacon, because I really like bacon. Um, and, and then you're like, I hope, I hope not, right? And then you read some of it, and you're like, ew, heave offering, I, I don't even know, like, ew, right? And so it's like skim, skim. And then as you're reading through your one-year Bible plan for the day, you're like, whew, finally New Testament, right? And then you get to the New Testament, and here's the great part, is you read the Scripture, and they ask Jesus this question in the New Testament. He says, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, that's the cliff notes, guys. Like the whole Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, Jesus says, it, it all boils down to the cliff note. You want to read the cliff notes? You want to get what it's all about? Here you go. Love God, love others. How many of you have read that scripture? Now, how many of you have thought, whew, I can kind of skip over this part. You don't have to admit to that, right? But oftentimes that we're like, okay, I got it. I read the cliff notes. I don't really need to go through any of this. I kind of think I know what it means to love God and love others. So I think I'm just good skipping over, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I mean, it's really interesting up until about Mount Sinai. And then there's the golden calf thing. That'll be in a couple weeks, right? Some amazing narratives still mixed in here. And there's some big chunks like we're going to take and we're not going to go all the way through verse by verse, just like this. We're not going to go through this all today, verse by verse, because we're covering three chapters. So buckle up, buckle up, because uh, put on your thinking caps. So there's some days where it's really hard, and some days where you need to think, because there's stuff you need to know. This is one of those days, but it will apply to your heart as well. But here's the thing. We think, okay, we love, you know, we, we, we know the cliff notes. We read the cliff notes. We're Christians, we read the cliff notes. Jesus said, love God, love others. We kind of got the uh, theme down, right? But here's the thing. A lot of times when we talk about love God and love others, we think we kind of got what that means. But then you uh, look on social media or anywhere, and that, it seems like uh, everybody thinks they know what that means. And oftentimes you're like, I'm not really sure that that's what that actually means, Right? I mean, in, in loving God, I, I think a lot of people just think it means sort of like, you know, a lot of times just throwing up a prayer, you know, kind of considering, yeah, there's a God up there, you know, maybe not ridiculing or, or taking his name in vain, right? But then when it comes to loving others, basically a lot of times we just kind of think that means just don't be a jerk, right? Just be a nice person. Help the old lady across the street or help the preacher on the scooter, across the street, poor guy. Or it's like, you do you, bro, you know. Love, love God, love others. You know, you just do you. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Live however you want, you know. And this is kind of how we sometimes think about these things. It's all about, oftentimes, when we hear love God and love others, it's all about the feels. Now, the feels are fun, aren't they? I mean, I'm, you know, I've been a musician for years. I love worship, and I love the feels. Goosebumps. 
Anybody else? Just me. No, you're like stoic out there, not us. I love it. God meant us to feel the feels. There's supposed to be an emotional connection to God. In fact, um, part of loving God is about our affections and our emotions being engaged with them. That's a significant part. Never push that off to the side, right? But, but oftentimes when we hear love God, love others, we make it all about the feels and we stop there. And here, here's the thing. The book of the covenant was what it meant 3,500 years ago for a newly formed society that had been in slavery for hundreds of years and had no idea how to build a society this was their case law like on how to love God and love their neighbor. This is some concrete, specific examples for them. A lot of these things are directly tied to one of the Ten Commandments and their uh, illustrations directly. So as the judges that Moses appointed to help him rule this, this people group, so that when people came and brought all their problems to him, they could point and go, yeah, God talked about that. Let's see, God said something similar to that. Let's go apply that case law, right? And as you read through some of these, and you know, I encourage you maybe to go read this whole section, Exodus 21 through 23, because we're not going to be able to cover all of it here today, but we're going to cover a lot of it, okay? Because some of these things are not um, obvious or applicable to you today. You know, I doubt you've had a bowl recently gored, another person's bowl, though we do have some ranchers here, right? So maybe you have the rest of us, probably not, you know? But these things show us about how God intended justice to work. And just to remind you, the purpose of these laws wasn't so that people would follow them all just good enough to tip the scales in their favor so that God would accept them and love them. God already loved them. He already redeemed them. He already brought them out of slavery. He already brought them, rescued them, brought them through the Red Sea, right? And called them, you're my people. So by the time they get to the Ten Commandments, he is now giving his laws to a group of people that are already in relationship with him. And that's a very important distinction. And so what these laws are, God's purpose for these laws, remember God's purpose for his nation is that you would be a nation of priests. And a priest is someone who represents God to others. And, and so for his people, he says, my purpose for you is to represent me to the nations that you would represent my heart to the nations. In fact, these laws, if you follow these and do a really good job, um, here, here's what it's going to look like. Everyone else is going to look at you and go, wow, what an amazing people. Look how just they are. Look how free they are. Look how at peace they are with each other. Wow, I wish I could live there. Wow, who's their God? Who's their God? And that's the point. The purpose of the nation of Israel was to represent God to the nations and make God attractive to the, to the nations. And if they follow this set of laws, they're going to prosper. They're going to have an incredible nation in this barbaric ancient time in history. All the other nations are going to look around and go, whoa, that's amazing. I want to know that God, right? And so today, what we want to do, we want to draw out some of these principles and discover some of the amazing things in here. Instead of just saying, oh, we've read the cliff notes, we kind of know what it means. We want to see some of the specific applications of what God, what God means when he says, love me and love others. When that sort of describes this whole first five books of the Bible, right? And really the whole Old Testament scriptures and the heart of it. And so we're going to start out 
in Exodus 20, just to remind you where we're at in the scene, uh, Moses has gone up Mount Sinai, received the Ten Commandments from God, and in front of the people all see this, it's called theophany, right? The clouds and the, the smoke and the mountain shakes, and they hear the voice of God rumbling, and they tell Moses, um, you go talk to him, we're freaked out, right? And so... In verse 22 of chapter 20, we're going to pick up there and then skip forward and then pick up where Jason left off last week. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this, You yourselves, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. In other words, he goes in to now tell them part of what it means, don't make idols. And he starts it by saying, You yourselves have seen. I mean, the thunder, the smoke, the lightning. Um, Moses tells them just a little bit before this, the reason God has showed up in this dramatic way is so that you would understand how powerful and how awesome he is, so that you would have a godly fear and reverence of him that would inform your life. And so as we talk about all these rules for this nation, you got to understand that you have to start with a proper fear of God. If you don't fear God, you will try to get by and get away with whatever you can. This is what we see in the history of this world, right? Uh, the question is, what do you do when no one is looking? And see, someone who fears God understands somebody's always looking. You don't get away with it. There is no getting away with it from the standpoint that God doesn't see. You, you, you can't hide anything with God. And see, an understanding of what it means to live a holy or a set-apart life before God begins with with having a proper fear and awe and reverence of who he is as the creator, as the all-powerful, awesome God who loves you enough to care about you and invite you into his family. In fact, um, Bertrand Russell, who is one of the preeminent atheists of the, the last century, he, he said this thing, I'm going to paraphrase, but um, he, he said basically, I really wish I could come up with a better idea why we should live morally and not hurt and murder each other other than it just seems wrong to me. But I really can't. I mean, he's like, I tried all my life. He tried to come up with a good argument for why an atheist should have good moral principles. And he, and he said, I really can't come up with a good reason. It's because the fear of God is where these things start. And in nations that have abandoned God, uh, the history of the last century, hundreds, over 100 million people wiped out by nation states and in communist nations that rejected that there was a God. And it always started out as a revolution for the little people. And it always ended up with somebody seizing power and control for themselves and oppressing and killing and massacring the little people. Because if you don't have a fear of God, a proper fear of God, uh, Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so that, that's where we begin as we head through. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 21. We're going to pick up in chapter or in verse 12 where Jason left off last week. And I have three things for you that are going to serve as three big principles or three big applications, action steps, and applications from these scriptures. And if you know your Bible, some of them are going to begin to sound a little familiar as we go through. Okay? Because you've probably read the cliff notes. 
But here you go. The first one is this. If you want to write these down, and I encourage you uh, to write these down, the first one is act justly. This is a huge theme throughout the law. Justice is a huge theme. And so, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 12, it says this, Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they are to flee to the place I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. Anyone who... Uh, so actually... Let me just pause. And this is such an incredible thing that God says the fact that humankind is created in the image of God is such a profound part of Scripture that to take, wrongly take another life. Remember, this is application of the Ten Commandments, what? Do not murder. And if you grew up with it as do not kill in the King James Version, um, I would say actually some of the more modern translations are, are a little better in understanding that as murder because uh, we're told throughout here that there's different um, legitimate reasons why you might need to take a, another life, like, like self-defense, um, times of war, different things, right? And here, he, God says, this is such a big deal that you will not take another human life. That if somebody wrongly does this, I mean, if it's an accident, he's going to set up these cities where somebody can flee and, and make their case like, I didn't mean to, it was an accident. We call that manslaughter, right? But if it was premeditated murder, not even the holiest place, like at the very altar, is safe. You've got to take them away from there. Justice is that big of a deal. Verse 15, anyone who attacks their father or mother is to be put to death. And just so you know, as you read through, if you read through uh, the first five books of the Bible, there's a lot of like, well, that's, that's another death penalty thing. Wow, interesting. That's kind of scary. And a lot of the Jewish scholars really believe, because as you look back through Jewish history, um, on a lot of these things, there is never once an illustration or an example in history of this actually happening. And the Jewish scholars would go, that's the point. That's why God put it in there with the penalty. So, verse 16, anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. Now, this is huge, and I just want to highlight this because this, this reiterates what Jason taught last week as we went through that really interesting section, like why does God start the Book of the Covenant section um, with this whole section on servants or slaves? Why didn't he just say none, nothing, Right? And we looked at some very legitimate reasons why they would have people in indentured servitude. Also, I want to remind you, these laws are written to a culture 3,500 years ago. Very different than our own. And so God starts with the section on, on uh, slaves or, or indentured servants, bond servants, they're called, last week. Uh, he starts with this section to remind them, you just came out of slavery you understand what it's like to be oppressed. I'm going to set rules and structures into the society so that even if someone is destitute and poor and has no way to provide for their family, uh, you can't mistreat them if they have to sell themselves basically in indentured servitude. Even if somebody steals someone and can't, something and can't pay it off and have, have to sell themselves, the maximum term would be six years, right? And in here, here, this verse specifically forbids what we think about when we think about slavery in the context of Western nations in Africa in the last couple hundred years. Specifically forbids it. 
You don't kidnap somebody and steal them and sell them. And what's the penalty? Death. God's serious about this. You don't do that, right? Exodus 21, 22. Justice, justice. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take, now pay attention to this because this will sound familiar to you. You are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, to anybody, does that sound harsh? Come on. Does that sound like, oh, that just sounds kind of barbaric. But let me, let me describe the culture of the time. And to do that, I, I'm just going to tell you, like, what's your natural tendency if somebody um, insults you? Or somebody, let's say they prank you. If you remember being a kid, we had like the prank culture in our youth group. And... Um, one time, like, we thought this would be really funny. We had this skit thing, and uh, there was, like, this facial kit, and we had to come up with skits. And our skit, uh, we saw this Halloween mask, and we thought, well, it'd be really funny um, if we just put, like, three drops of super glue and glued this to uh, the youth intern's face. And so it was one of those things, like, looking back in slow motion as this was a great plan, and then my friend unscrews the wrong cap from the super glue like the big one, and I'm, I look back, and he's got super glue everywhere, like smearing it over this thing, and it's dripping off his hand, and I'm like, stop, but it was too late. And he stuck this thing onto, onto uh, Chris's <laughs> face. Yeah. Thankfully, thankfully, he smelled it right away because of the overwhelming amount of super glue and pulled it off his face before it could do any permanent damage other than the fact that I don't know if he still can grow a beard to this day. So, um, <laughs> But we got in big trouble, as we should have, right? But even worse than that, we lived in terror. Terror of Chris, because we knew retribution was coming. We did not know what it was. I remember we went to, youth group, or to Lake Powell on a youth group trip for a week, and we had, I had one of those uh, alarms that you used to hang on the door, and it beeped. I don't know if you remember those, like doorknob security alarm kind of things. Yeah, so we hooked one of those up to the zipper of our tent. We were that scared. <laughs> and finally, he got us back, and it wasn't that bad, because what can you do to a youth kid, you know? Uh, that's worse than that, and so... Um, don't do that, youth. Don't do that. But that's retribution, right? What do you expect? If somebody does something to you, you one-up them. You escalate, right? How about road rage? You know, if you get somebody cuts you off, what's your natural tendency? Your natural tendency is like, I don't know. Like you either get right up on their bumper, Right? Or you whip out into that other lane, you pull out in front of them, and then you slow down. And then your wife goes, you're a pastor. Stop it. <laughs> but that's our natural tendency, isn't it? Our natural tendency is to escalate. And in a culture like this, in a society like this, the mighty rule. 
And so if you insult somebody's family, we're going to come back and we're going to we're going to kill somebody, right? Or if you accidentally, you know, wound a family member, it's an accident, we're going to come back and we're going to rape and pillage your village, wipe you off the face of the earth, haul you off to slavery. Literally, that's the kind of culture they live in. The mighty rule. There is not equal justice. If you're powerful, you rule. And see, here's what this is happening here. This is not a prescription for necessary, like, there is a, this is meant as a limit to escalation in a culture that all it knew was escalation and you one-up somebody else. And if you're mighty, you take revenge. And here he's saying, hey, equal justice without escalation. You don't take revenge and, and because somebody has injured you or hurt you in some way, you, you don't go and wipe out their family. <laughs> in this society, at this time of history, this is revolutionary and this is freedom. This is freedom, right? In fact, the New Testament carries this on and it says, um, don't take revenge, leave room for God. Like for somebody that really believes and trusts in God, you don't have to take revenge. Let God handle it. He's a much better judge. It's the understanding that everyone is going to stand before God. How does this apply to us today? I don't know, but, um, well, actually a very specific application. All the frivolous lawsuits, right, that we see in our society. In all sorts of fields, right? Why does your health insurance cost so much? Why does other insurance? Why? Because of so many frivolous lawsuits, Right? And, and this one-upping culture where, oops, I spilled some hot coffee on me and got a little burn. I think I can get like $10 million from Starbucks for this. That's a litigious society. And in this culture, it says, hey, stop escalation. The maximum you can do is repay the offense in the way it was given out. And many rabbis don't think this was ever meant to be a specific um, dictate for literal interpretation. Because oftentimes there was a monetary penalty that somebody could pay instead of one of these things, right? The specific thing. But it was equal justice without escalation. All right, moving on. If anyone uncovers a pit or digs one and fails to cover it and an ox or donkey falls into it, the one who opened the pit must pay the owner for the loss and take the dead animal in exchange. In other words, if you dig a pit and you're like, oh, it was an accident. No, you were negligent. You were negligent. You know this was an agriculture area. You left it. You need to pay back the animal that was lost. We know you didn't intend for it to happen, but still, pay back the animal that was lost, you get the dead animal. It's not a very good trade. You're right. That'll teach you to be more careful in the future, won't it? Justice. It's acting justly, right? Verse 35. If anyone's bull injures someone else's bull and it dies, the two parties are to sell the live one and divide both the money and the dead animal equally. This is cool, because also in a litigious society, there's always somebody to blame, even when it's an accident, right? And this scripture recognizes sometimes it's just an accident. Sometimes nobody's at fault. You didn't know this bull was going to attack the other, so what do you do? You sell the live one, split it, split the other one, go have a barbecue each with your family, and move on with your lives. Sometimes accidents happen. But 
However, verse 36, however, if it was known that the bull had the habit of goring, yet the owner did not keep it penned up, the owner must pay animal for animal and take the dead animal in exchange. Again, bad trade. You've been negligent, right? You need to take personal responsibility for your actions. What does it mean to act justly? Part of that is taking personal responsibility for your actions. First, chapter 22, skip ahead. Chapter 22, verse 3, the second half, says this. Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that word down. Restitution, under act justly. But if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, they must pay it back double. Why double? Because if all they got to do is pay back the exact amount, what kind of motivation is that not to steal in the future? All right? Verse 5. If anyone grazes their livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in someone else's field, the offender must make restitution. There you go. From the best of their own field or vineyard. You got to make it right from the best. Like go above and beyond to make sure you've made it right to your fellow human being. Skip to verse 9. In all cases of illegal possession of an ox, a donkey, a sheep, a garment, or any other lost property about which someone says, this is mine, both parties are to bring their cases before the judges. The one who judge, the judges declare guilty must pay back double to the other. There's a legal system here. You don't just get to go attack them. No. You bring it before the judges. You know what? The nations that have put these laws into effect are some of the freest, most just, and prosperous nations in the world. The nations that have been based on Judeo-Christian values that are found right here in the Old Testament. Verse 10, if anyone gives a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any other animal to their neighbor for safekeeping, and it dies or is injured or is taken away while no one is looking, the issue between them will be settled by, taking, by the taking of an oath before the Lord that the neighbor did not lay hands on the other person's property. The owner is to accept this, and no restitution is required. What would it be like to live in a society where everyone had a, such a high view of who God is and the fact that there's a God. That if somebody, if something happens, nobody saw it, and the person's like, honest, I, I don't know what happened. I'll take an oath before God. And the fear of God is enough. The awe and the reverence and respect of God is enough that the other person goes, I believe you. I trust you. Man, that'd be a pretty good society to live in, wouldn't it? Again, that comes from a proper awe and respect of God. Okay, so act justly. The first one, right? Second one, love mercy. Love mercy. And what we see in here is God's heart is merciful. God's heart is merciful. And I know some of you are like, ah, I'm on to you. <laughs> Wasn't sure on the first one, but now I'm on to you. I know where you're going with this. You're the Bible nerds. Um, but again, we know this is the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love mercy. Verse 22, verse 21. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. You remember what it was like to be in slavery? 
Remember what it was like to have to take refuge in another nation and then everybody turned on you and oppressed you and put you into slavery? Don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. That is against the heart of God. Verse 22, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. How? He's going to allow, in fact, later he tells, if, if you abandon these laws, I'm going to allow foreign armies to come in. If you oppress the, the, if you oppress the poor and the, and the marginalized in your nation, guess what? You're going to become poor and marginalized, and then you're going to get to see what it feels like, right? Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Verse 25, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. In our society, we'd, we would call this predatory lending, where you take advantage of someone who is in, desperate, in a desperate circumstance and put them in such a place with high interest rates and never being able to pay it back that in this society, their only hope was to, have, to sell themselves, essentially, into slavery for a period of time, right? If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am what? Compassionate. And God right here defines himself as compassionate. He cares about you. He cares about people in need. He cares about people who cannot stand up for their own rights. Chapter 23, verse 1. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. This is huge. In fact, the founders of our nation, one of the reasons why we are a constitutional republic and not a, a straight democracy is because they understood that the mob is all, often wrong. The majority oftentimes when they have the ability to, will oppress those who are not in the majority. Mob rule, and right here, this comes from this principle right here. It says don't go after the crowd. When the crowd's wrong, you don't go along with the majority just because the majority has an opinion. You do what's right. You treat people properly. When you give testimony, going on, when you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. Wait, to what? Don't show favoritism to, you mean a rich person? No, to a poor, poor person. In other words, justice. See, here's the thing. Oftentimes, we allow compassion to override justice. And actually, compassion without justice is cruelty. Because it means you're oppressing someone else. It's never right to oppress someone else because you feel sorry for someone else. There's an ultimate standard. Compassion and justice always go together. That's why you always you, you act justly. And here we see you love mercy. But the two, you can't just pull them apart and go for one without the other. Compassion or empathy for others without justice. It, God would say, no, that's, that's a non-starter, right? Now we'll see the opposite of this in just a verse couple of verses. If you come across your enemy's ox or donk, donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey or someone who hates you falling down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help them with it. Hmm. That sounds a lot like when Jesus said, 
love your enemies, do good to those who curse you, right? You read the cliff notes. The principles are here. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. So it goes both ways. And, and in the time, this would have been definitely, and, and come on, honestly, in modern culture, right? This is definitely what happens more often is that those who are mighty abuse their power. They're able to pay someone off. They're able to abuse the poor in their lawsuits because they have more means. And God says, not in this culture. You love mercy and act justly. They go together, right? Have nothing to do with a false charge and, if, and do not put an innocent or honest person to death for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the innocent. And see, this ties back into that, right? That this ties into the thing of oppressing someone who's poor because in so many nations around this world, one of the primary causes of the desperate situation they're in is corruption. And so you have a few rich, wealthy people who can get what they want because they can pay off the right people. In fact, many, there's many people in Africa today. The whole continent of Africa is still in, in a lot of parts of Africa in great poverty. I've done missions work there and specifically community development type of work. Um, it, it, training is what I, what I did there. And corruption is one of the, the worst things. One of the things, if you look at nations that don't flourish, I almost guarantee you they have a, a culture of corruption and bribery. And God says right here, do not do that. I want your nation to flourish. Do not oppress a foreigner. Oh, look, where does he land? I, thought, wait, I, I think God's repeating himself. You think maybe he wants them to get this? Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. So you what? You act justly. You love mercy. You love mercy. You can't break the two apart, otherwise the whole thing falls apart. And you can't ignore this third one, otherwise none of this really works very well. The third one is this, walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. And it begins where we started, a proper awe and reverence for God that results in putting Him front and center in our lives. That's where we started, to have no other gods, no other idols, Put me at the center of your life. Remember the very first of the Ten Commandments. I want to be front and center in your life because I am the center. And anytime you allow something else to replace me in the center of your heart and life, your life starts to go off the rails. Your society starts to go off the rails. The rest of this stuff is so dependent on keeping God as the center of your life. And so he reminds them of a few things here and expands some of the principles of the Sabbath. Exodus 23.10, For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops, but during the seventh year let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. In other words, you're going to have to learn to trust me, and I'm going to provide for you abundantly. But I want you to be constantly reminded that I am the centerpiece of your life, and you trust me. Verse 12, six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work so that your ox and donkey may rest. Try to find any other place in, in ancient history that, has, that even gives value to animals like this. 
so that your ox and donkey may rest, and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods, and do not let them be heard on your lips. I'm serious about being the front and center. I'm serious about you getting rid of idols. I know what will happen if you go after idols. Three times a year, you are to celebrate a festival to me. And he begins to institute these three major celebrations in the Jewish calendar. And we're not going to take much time on that today. Verse 19, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord, your God. I want you to give to me first. Not as a leftover thing. You put God first. You give, you save, you live. Put God first, he says. Walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. Now, this is the first part. Actually, you know, the, the whole law is going to be part of the covenant. What they agree to as God's people. And God will go on throughout the rest of uh, you know, Leviticus to give so many more laws that'll, that'll part of the covenant that'll influence different parts of their lives, right? Some of it will be stuff around justice and how you treat others and how you keep God first. Some of it will be a whole bunch of how their whole religious system works. And the amazing thing about that is it's all pictures that point forward towards Jesus. How every, every year you would bring a sacrifice because nobody's going to keep this perfectly. You recognize part of walking humbly before God is recognizing you're a sinner. You sin. You fall short of meeting the mark. And you need God's forgiveness. You need his mercy. And so he institutes this thing. Actually, uh, tonight starts on the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement in the Jewish calendar as the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. As people repent for their sins, and acknowledge that they've sinned. There would be sin offerings, and it all is something that's pointing toward Jesus. And in the next chapter, we're going to see this. Um, in, in two weeks, we're going to see this. Israel hears this covenant, and they understand, wow, what an amazing set of laws. What amazing freedom this brings. We're in. We're going to do this. And they agree, yes, we're going to keep this covenant. We're in. But sadly, the history of the nation is that they go on to break the covenant over and over and over. And it always begins with idolatry, with going after, with allowing something else to take the place of God or come alongside God as a place of importance in their hearts. And they would go after idols and the Baals and all the gods, you know, idol gods that the Canaanites in the area, the promised land, uh, worshipped their neighbors they would start taking on awful, detestable practices that God says, don't ever do that, like sacrificing their children, their babies on the fire to the god Molech. They failed to act justly. They failed to have mercy. They failed to put God first when it came to giving from their first fruits. All of these things over and over and over again. And God says prophet and prophet and prophet to warn them. And about 800 years after, he, after Moses communicates this law from God, about 800 years later, God sends another prophet named Micah to warn 
the whole nation and to warn specifically the northern kingdom, Israel, before they're hauled off into exile. That, hey, this is coming. Judgment is coming. There's hope. There's a future. There's a Messiah who's going to come and a kingdom that's coming that he'll initiate that'll, that'll be amazing, but you need to repent. And guess what? Those three principles, that's where it comes from. If you're a Bible nerd, you knew that already. Micah 6, 8. The prophet says this, He has shown you, O mortal. He has shown you, O mankind. What is good? And what does the Lord require of you? Like this is what God expects. This is what God requires. And if you want to boil this whole thing down, Micah says, here's how I would boil it down. What does it mean to love God and love others? Here's some action steps. To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. And Micah says, return to God. And the people don't return. And the ten tribes are hauled off into the nations, into exile by the Assyrians, never to return. But two tribes will return. And Jeremiah, another prophet, will prophesy an amazing time where he says, hey, we received the covenant, the Sinai covenant from God, and we didn't do a very good job keeping it. But there's a new covenant coming. A new covenant that won't just be offered to, to Israel, but to every nation in the world, people from every tongue and tribe, and forgiveness of sins will be available to them. No longer having to offer and sacrifice bulls and rams and all these things every year. In fact, the holy of holies, the holiest place, the giant thick curtain would be torn when Jesus came and when he died, signifying that God is available to each and every person. That relationship with God is available to you and I. That the thing that separated us from God has been covered if we put our faith and our trust in Jesus. The new covenant has come. And John the Baptist came and he said, the last of the Old Testament prophets, he called the people to repent because he said, I'm going to baptize you for repentance with water, but one is coming after me. And he looks at Jesus and says, that one, the Lamb of God. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That you will have life. And actually the presence of God through faith in Jesus will dwell in you in such a way that just like the prophet Jeremiah said, the law of God will be written on your heart. That you go back and you read all this because it helps you understand the heart of God and his intention and what it meant in applying loving God and loving others in this culture and in this time in history. But then as you face each and every decision of your life on a daily basis, you take it with what you know of Scripture and you say, Holy Spirit, I want to walk with you. What would you have me do in this circumstance? Who would you have me love? Who would you have me pray for? And that's available to you because of what Jesus did. So we're going to close in a little bit different way today. It's communion weekend here at Life Community. And we're going to celebrate communion together. And we're going to celebrate this new covenant. But here's what I want to do. If there's anyone in this room or anyone who is joining us online, 
and you have not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus, you have access to relationship with God, not by keeping the law perfectly. None of us ever do that. Not even by keeping it good enough that you've tipped the scales in your favor. You have access to God because you trust in Jesus and what he did when you died. They looked forward to Jesus. We look back at Jesus and what he did on the cross when we celebrate. And by trusting in him, you have access. And he says, the Holy Spirit will indwell you. And I'll write my law in your heart. And I will guide your steps every day. And so if that's you in the room, I just want to invite you or watching online. to You can take a step of faith by declaring that to him by praying a simple prayer like this. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I know I cannot make it to the Father on my own. I invite you to come into my life. Forgive me. Give me eternal life. I want to turn away from a life of sin and turn to following you with all my heart, Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and allow me to live my life for you. Let me just say for the rest of you, I want to encourage you. Is there an area in your life where as we've gone through this that you know there's an area the Holy Spirit has been prompting you or pushing on or poking on and every time you're quiet it's just like it just keeps coming up to your heart and your mind and 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 it's like he's saying you need to focus on this you need to fix this maybe it's something with with someone in your life that you need to make right see part of the truth in here is loving god loving your neighbor sometimes just saying sorry isn't enough sometimes you have something you really need to make right Sometimes just feeling bad about something isn't enough. You know, repentance isn't just about feeling bad about your sin. Repentance is about saying, God, I'm going to walk away from that sin. Here's what I'm asking you to do as you take this and remember what Jesus did for you. That instead of praying, God, I'm going to do better this time, that you would say, I've gotten out of step with you, and Holy Spirit, I want to walk in step with you. I want my life to be guided and led and controlled by you. Would you give me the power and the strength to walk that out and to take the step you're calling me to take. Would you pray that?